Joshua chapter 3. I'm going to read the entire chapter with you. Hear the word of God with me. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will, be without, that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priest bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout this time of harvest, the waters coming down from, the, down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Thus far, would you now sing with me hymn number 65, stands for tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders among you. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Aurora this morning. Our text speaks of tomorrow. But tomorrow was one of the most mysterious words in our English language. Who knows anything about tomorrow? Yesterday is well known. It's even recorded. It is what we call history. We can read about history in our textbooks and even what we call historical novels. And, and children are taught history in school. And we know, or at least we can know, about yesterday. And we can learn from history. 
Today is unfolding itself. Some of today is already known. It has already become history, if you will. And the rest of today will soon be revealed in the events of today and, and will also be recorded in history. But, but tomorrow, tomorrow, that's a mysterious word. We stand before it as we would before a closed, strange door. We do not know what lies on the other side of today. As the Christian hymn writer observed, I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me. Of golden days or weary ways before his face I see. And we know the reality of that statement. We know not whether our future will consist of golden days or weary ways. We don't know if tomorrow will be kind or will it be burdensome. That information, that door, knowing that information remains closed and mysterious. In fact, in fact, the Apostle James says it so well when he writes, Come now, come now, you that say tomorrow we will go into such and such a city and we will continue there for a year and we'll buy and sell and make a profit. Why? He says, you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. In fact, you don't even know if there will be a tomorrow. But despite the fact that tomorrow has always been shrouded in mystery, man has always had a foolish interest in knowing what of tomorrow Fortune tellers and soothsayers have been with us since the dawn of creation, and it seems that today that interest in telling the future is even stronger. Today there seems to be a greater interest to to draw that veil aside and and to glimpse in the future. And astrologers and crystal gazers and fortune tellers and tea leaf readers are all plying their fraudulent trade with huge success these days. Every major newspaper contains horoscopes purporting to predict a person's future based on the position of the moon and the stars. And a, and, 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 and a gullible and undiscerning people are gobbling it up. They want to know, is tomorrow, will it be full of, of, of glory or despair? Men want to know what the future holds. Will our Canadian economy tank or will it explode as promised by our new government? Will the war in Syria escalate, or does Barack Obama really hold the solution to peace in those countries? Will North Korea become a nuclear threat to the Western world? What about the unrest and the anarchy we now see in Turkey? Or or will those wars in the East, coupled with that frequent and current tension between Israel and the Arab world, and and also the confrontation between India and Pakistan, uh, being armed with with, with nuclear warheads, Will that, will that all escalate into World War III? My dear people of God, tomorrow is filled. Tomorrow is filled with revolutionary, world-shaking potentialities and possibilities for good and for evil. In many ways, in many ways, tomorrow does not look promising. And in the face of these grim uncertainties, men have grown panicky or pessimistic. For some, the shadows of the future have grown so long and daunting that they live each day in an unhealthy fear of tomorrow. The joy of life and living escapes them, and a sense of fatalism pervades their view of life, giving birth to despair. But, 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 for the people of God, though they face the same facts and the same realities of life as the rest of the world, they look to tomorrow not with despair, but with confidence. 
They look to the future in hope and even joy. And, and that makes sense for, for you cannot be a pessimist when you believe in a sovereign God. You cannot be a pessimist when you believe that God sits on his throne holding the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. The kids used to sing. The Christian knows that the future of the world rests with our sovereign God who is firmly seated on his eternal throne in heaven from where he directs all history through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian knows that he does not know the future, but he knows who holds the future. The Christian, through the eyes of his faith, he sees Jesus. And he sees Jesus gathering, defending, and preserving the church. And so the people of God, they look to tomorrow with confidence. My dear precious saints of God, every Sunday again, we celebrate Christ's victory on Golgotha. In his death and in his resurrection, he overcame the powers of darkness. But, but, but his conquest didn't seem to have had much of an impact on the world. It really didn't seem to be much of a victory there in Palestine, did it? Oh, one might ask, just what did that victory of our Lord accomplish? What I mean is, we know from our Bibles that immediately after his ascension, his disciples were persecuted. And many of them died a martyr's death. And, 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 and all of that after Christ's victory. Does that sound like a victory to you? And here we are 2,000 years, 2,000 some years later, and that, and that persecution of the church has continued all through history. And what makes it all the more frightening is that, is that Christ himself warned us that it must be so. And furthermore, the life of the individual Christian also can be and often is very difficult. As we walk the road called life, as we walk from this world to the next world, Life is often perplexing, difficult, even painful. We confess and we believe that we are always under the watchful eye of the Good Shepherd, but oftentimes we are confronted with circumstances that seem to belie or deny the fact of Christ's victory and authority. Oftentimes it appears that Satan has the upper hand rather than Christ. In fact, in fact, Apart from the eyes of faith, it would appear that the world is thriving and the church is dying. To what end then this great victory of Christ that we celebrate? Well, our text of this morning points us the way. I administer God's word to you this morning using as my theme, <clears throat> What of Tomorrow? We will examine the glorious promise of the future but we'll also hear of the commandment for today, the promise of the future, but the commandment for today. The text assures us that tomorrow the Lord will do great things for us. But the promise comes with a condition. The assurance of that glorious tomorrow lies in our obedience to the commandment of today. Sanctify yourselves. People of God, the commandment in our, uh, in our text to the Old Testament church was... Simple and profound. Sanctify yourself. But my dear precious saints of God, think deeply with me for a moment. For it is a commandment not only to the ancient church, not only to the individual Israelites, not only to Israel as a nation, but that same commandment comes to us. To us individually and collectively as families and even as a church here in Elora. And it comes to us as a nation and God says, sanctify yourselves. 
And in their biblical context, these words were originally directed to the children of Israel. As they stood at last, after 40 years of wandering in the heat of the desert, you know the story. After 40 years of aimlessly wandering in that wilderness, here they were. They were finally standing on the edge of the Jordan. They were in sight of the promised land. Before them lay Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. It was their land. It was deeded to them. It was promised to them by God. They could see that land before them. It was so close. But in order to possess it, They had to first cross the stormy Jordan River and then they had to deal with the Amorites and all of their allies who would surely wage war against them. But that prospect of war presented a unique challenge for Israel. You see, although they had a thorough knowledge of the desert wilderness, although the the 40 years had given them an expert knowledge in the geography and the climate and, and although they knew how to live and to fight in the desert, Now they stood on the threshold of a new experience. God had said to them, you have not passed this way before. Their old leader Moses was dead, and all of the thousands which had fled out of Egypt, out of all of them, only two leaders of the entire host remained, and Israel had no experience at war. They were not equipped or prepared for war. They were nomads. They were traveling through the desert for 40 years. Their hands were not prepared for battle. Try to imagine them with me. There they stood. They looked ahead. They saw a hard task ahead of them. They could see Jericho. There it stood. There it stood. But but it it stood in their way. It was a formidable place intimidating, apparently safe behind its massive walls. And now these nomads, they were called to conquer it. People God, is it any wonder that we read so frequently in the first chapter of Joshua, be strong, be of good courage. They needed special guidance for the uncertain way ahead of them. They had no army in the military sense. They had no weapons for war on that scale. And the future therefore looked bleak and unpromising, and so they needed faith, they needed courage to go forward, but above all, according to the text, they needed, they needed, they needed consecration. Joshua comes to Israel and prepares them for a battle, and he says, Sanctify yourselves. People of God, think with me. That commandment surprises us if we read superficially. We would have expected the commandment to be arm yourselves, prepare yourselves for battle, but no, sanctify yourselves or consecrate yourselves. And and mighty people of God, that is the greatest need of the hour. Also in our land, sanctify yourselves. That in short is the message of our New Testament, Joshua, Jesus Christ. Before God would deliver the enemy into the hands of Israel, they had to not arm themselves. No, they had to sanctify them. Did you catch that? Do you understand what God is saying here? God is telling Israel that he will do no wonders among them unless they individually and collectively sanctified themselves. God says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Therefore, sanctify yourselves. People of God, we call preaching and the sacraments the means of grace. 
and it's set before you twice every Sunday. And on occasion, every third month or so, you get the extra means of grace in the sacraments. But what does God expect you to do with that grace? He sets it before you each Lord's Day again, and we call them the means of grace. But to what end? Well, think with me. As a nation, as families, as individual believers, and as a church, God calls out to us and he says, Do not expect my blessing unless unless you first sanctify yourselves. That's it. That's it. God calls us to a new and a holier life. God calls us to a deeper and a more earnest commitment to our divine mission. And to that end, God feeds us every Lord's Day again. God calls us to a clear separation from the philosophies and the conduct of this perishing world. And when I point a finger at you, I'm pointing three back at myself. But let me ask you, do you not feel the need of penitence and cleansing in your own heart and life? Are you as a Christian individual, are you personally living up to that high calling wherewith Christ has called you? Is it your heartfelt desire to serve God above all else in all that you do? And how about, for instance, in our marriages? Are they sanctified havens for nurturing our mates and raising up godly sons and daughters to follow us in the way of the Lord? And how about our families? Do you believe that your own family is living in full fellowship with God? And are you leading, guiding, and praying so that your family may be sanctified before the Lord? And what about our greater community? Is our community living up to the known ideals which Christ has set? And what about our nation? Do not the moral liabilities of the nation overwhelm you or bring you to your knees with a prayer for a heaven-sent revival? Do I really need to convince you that our nation is morally and spiritually bankrupt? Mighty people, God forgive me, but Canadian patriotism runs high in many quarters, especially after the election of our new prime minister. But I'm convinced it is a wholly misguided and unwarranted patriotism. We see all kinds of signs confidently expressing the, that, that our land will be blessed. God's blessing upon our nation. Our new government proudly proclaims that Canada will be exempt from the calamity that will engulf most of the rest of the world. But my dear people of God, it will be my conviction that it is a false pride for our nation has no reason to expect God's blessing. Would God bless Canada where abortions have become a state-sanctioned method of birth control? Would God bless our nation where Dr. Henry Morgenthal, the father of abortion in Canada, is given the high honor of being inducted into the Order of Canada? Would God bless our land where the state encourages and promotes gambling at casinos even while being aware of the social and moral difficulties which must naturally accompany such practice? Would God bless a land where gays and and, and lesbians are now proudly waving their marriage licenses? Would God bless our land where materialism is the God of the citizens? Would God bless our land when God's laws may not be posted in public buildings? Would God bless a land where entertainment, sports, pornography, and murder are the order of the day? 
Would it not be better for us to post signs saying, pray for our land. Pray that our land may repent of her horrific sins against God and against his law. Unless there is proper repentance individually and collectively, how dare we ask God's blessing on our nation? No, the national call needs to be, Canada, sanctify yourselves or yourself. And what about the church scene in our land? Isn't that also appalling? Corey and I, my wife and I, were so often struck as we traveled across this great land to serve the various churches from the east and the west. And, 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 and we were appalled at the number of church buildings that have been closed and converted into shops and antique stores. The houses of worship are no longer part of the fabric of our society. Churches are being closed and abandoned for lack of attendance. And of the churches that still do welcome their congregations on Sunday mornings for worship, thousands of them were still claiming to believe their traditional historic creeds. They deny the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement, total depravity, and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, and almost every other cardinal fundamental doctrine of the historic Christian faith. The churches in the land, they've become little more than venues of entertainment and hotbeds of false doctrine. Does the church not not need to hear that same command? Sanctify yourself. And what about the people in the land? Need I remind you that this is a nation of so many broken homes? I read recently that three out of four marriages now end in divorce in our land. God says, I hate divorce, but that doesn't seem to affect three quarters of the married people in our nation. Adultery has become an acceptable norm. There are now more couples cohabitating without the benefit of marriage than there are actually married couples. Premarital sex is condoned and promoted. Drug use is epidemic and alcohol abuse is becoming ever more common, even among church members, I fear. Rape and insurrection and murder and robbery and homosexual activity. It's all part of a normal part of our nation. What think ye? Do we need sanctification in our land? And my dear Bill God, as individuals, as churches, and as a nation, we stand indicted before the bar of an almighty God, even as Christians. What shall we say about the average church member? who is described by the traditional phrase of in good and regular standing. Has he or she crucified their old nature and is the world crucified to them? Has Christ become so dear to them and the new life so complete in them that the world has lost her subtle charms for them? What must we say about the loyalties and the priorities and the values even of many professing Christians, perhaps even among us here today? Be not conformed to the world, says the Bible. But many confessing Christians continue to, to compromise with the world by doing as the world does. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But many so-called followers of the scriptural teaching seem to love the world more than the church, more than Bible study or a prayer meeting. Do you not know that friendship of the world is enmity with God? But thousands who profess to be Christians would rather antagonize heaven than offend their earthly friends. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. But that line of demarcation between the believer and the man of the world (coughs) continues to fade and become ever more hazy. 
In the old days, in an ancient day, the disciples, they were recognized by the world because of their distinctive conduct and their distinctive faith. Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ should still be distinguished that way. Whether you work in a store or the office or the shop or in the barn or in the school or on the tractor, whether you are a student, can it be said of you? Can it be said of you that your life is characteristically Christian? You may call it old-fashioned or puritanical or anything else, but those who are truly consecrated have, like the Apostle Paul, they have been crucified unto the world and the world is crucified to them. If God is going to do wonders in the church and if God is going to do wonders through the church, we shall have to begin today with a commitment to sanctify ourselves. That's God's command also for us here today in Alora. But our text goes on. If we have been prayerfully obedient, if we have been prayerfully obedient to this command, if we have poured out our hearts in humble penitence before the Lord, then we may also claim and appropriate the promise. If we are faithful in consecrating ourselves before the Lord, then the promise of the text is ours as well. We read tomorrow, the Lord will do wonders among you. That is his promise. The Lord will do great things among you tomorrow. That's his promise, but it's his promise to a sanctified people. And Israel obeyed, and you know what happened. The great river Jordan miraculously divided before them. Jericho's massive walls fell flat, and the city was conquered. The armies of 31 kings were routed. The sun and the moon stood still in heavens, and the, and, and the promised land, the promised land, though filled with giants, was also filled with milk and honey. And God gave it to his people, and it became their possession. And that God will do for Canada, and that God will do for the church and for you and me. But hear me well. The wonders of his grace, the wonders of his power flow out over sanctified lives. The ancient truth that God spoke to Solomon still stands. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. My dear people, God, Canada was once a proud, glorious, and moral nation. It was a, a land overwhelmed by God's mercies. And God is ready again to do wonders in forgiveness and restoration to that former glory of former glories. If only we will seek his face and turn in penitence from all self and sin. He's ready to do wonders in guiding the government of our fair land. He's ready to grant material blessings. He's ready to grant spiritual power to the church and to every individual in it. Here is a genuine promise and hope for the future. Sanctify yourselves, for the Lord will do wonderful things. He will do wonders among you tomorrow. Tomorrow, it need not be a mysterious word. It need not be a time we anticipate with dread. It can be a time of wonders and a victory for us personally, for our families, for our marriages, for our church, and for our land. Return with me for a moment now to the historical context of the text. There stood Israel. We could say, there stood the church. The long season of preparation had come to an end. And the daunting task confronting them must now be tackled. Understand this well. 
the 40 years they had spent in the wilderness must be viewed from a twofold standpoint. First of all, it was a divine judgment on the adult generation, which after being so graciously brought out of Egypt and so gloriously delivered at the Red Sea, gave way to an evil heart of unbelief, balking at the prospect of conquering Canaan. But secondly, those 40 years was also a training time for the, for the younger generation who were to occupy the land of the promise. Mighty people of God, it would be my conviction that this has not always been sufficiently recognized and stressed when this has, history is being explained. You see, during those 40 years, the older generation all passed away, but many sons and daughters had been born, and they were given to see, those the younger generation, they were given to see and experience the wonders of the Lord in a manner and to an extent which no other generation has ever seen. There was a a visible display of God's faithfulness before their eyes when the younger generation, they saw God sustaining such a vast number of people with a daily supply of food from heaven. And at the close of 40 years, Moses could even say, even your clothes and your shoes have not worn out these 40 years. And people got that is still his way with his people. God still comes to us, especially he comes to our younger people. And he calls us to trust in him. But he does so only after having first shown his blessing. God does not come to you and to me calling us to trust in him with all of our hearts until he has given us clear proof that he is fully worthy of our confidence. God does not call us to overcome the world or to mortify our old nature and resist the devil until until he has strengthened us with might by his spirit in the inner man. But now notice with me how he does that. In verse 2 of this chapter we read, So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp. Now that strikes us as a bit strange at first. At first thought, it seems strange that such a multitude should be left encamped there for this length of time before a further word was spoken to them. But a little reflection should indicate the Lord's design, the Lord's intent, and then shows us the important lesson that we need to learn. People of God, ponder this incident with me. Try to visualize this scene before you in your mind's eye. It was not an army of men only, but it was a vast congregation of men, women, and children to say nothing of their baggage and their herds of animals, and suddenly they could go no further. The road was blocked by the river, and whatever the breadth and the depth of the Jordan may be today, it is evident that it presented an impassable obstruction in Joshua's time. Moreover, it was, we read, we read it was in the flood season. It was in the flood season, yet they were left to gaze upon that obstacle for three days. For three days they sat there. For three days they sat there looking at that river, that river in flood stage, and, 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 that, and, that, and that city across, and they were wondering, How in the world, for three days, how in the world will we overcome such great obstacles? It is impossible for us. Why was it now? What was the Lord's objective in this? Why did God allow them to sit there for three days, not telling them how they were to cross over? Was it not to impress Israel more deeply with a realization of their own utter helplessness? 
Was it not to draw them ever closer to himself? And is it not, not that also the chief design of God's providential dealings with us? Does God not often call us to the same patience in the face of seemingly insurmountable obstacles? Is it not the love of God that first of all brings us to the end of our own resources? Is it not the gracious way of the Lord to bring us into situations from which we cannot extricate ourselves, confronting us with some obstacles which which to human wisdom uh, are insurmountable? And by nature we are proud, and we are self-reliant, and when faced with difficulties we want to solve them by our own wisdom, by our own efforts, in our own strength. But see now God's way with Israel. The Lord graciously resolved to humble them, and therefore the difficulties are increased, and for a season, for three days, they are left to themselves before the Jordan until they had duly weighed the difficulty and discovered that they had nothing of their own wherewith to cross the Jordan and to face the opposition. Israel was left for three days to gaze at their own helplessness, at their own impotency, apart from him who alone could undertake for them. Those three days before the river was the necessary preparation for what followed. The three days were the background from which the miracle might be the more evident and the more appreciated by Israel. My dear people of God, it is not until man is made painfully aware of his own need that he turns to the Lord and seeks his invention. That truth is written large across, for instance, the 107th Psalm where we read, Hungry and thirsty their souls fainted in them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. There was no one to help them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them. They draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord. In other words, words, they were at their wit's end. And when they were at their wit's end, then they cried to the Lord. In order to prepare them for the great things that God would do, they first of all had to learn to give up any confidence in themselves. And people, God God has fed you again this morning. And he now sends you back out into the world. And as you wonder what tomorrow may bring, begin with the prayer that God will enable you to surrender yourselves and your future more and more into his hands. Then sanctify yourselves. For after you have suffered a little while, God will do great things for you. If only we will sanctify ourselves Even then, daunting, powerful rivers that stand in our way will be parted and dried up for us. And even fortified walls like those of Jericho will tumble to make room for us. If only we will sanctify ourselves by his grace, then God in his marvelous grace will do marvelous things for us. If not here in Alora, then most certainly in glory. Amen. Would you now turn with me to hymn 65 again, and let's use stanzas 3 and 4. Stanza 3 and 4 of hymn 65. 